Well, today we are continuing our series in the book of James entitled Gospel Wisdom. So if you have a Bible, turn to James 4, or you'll find the text printed in your bulletin, James 4, verses 13 through 17. Remember, James is a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus to the churches spread out uh, in the known world because of persecution. It's a very practical letter. Uh, Sometimes we feel like we're drinking out of a fire hydrant. There's so much there so quickly, uh, but it is all for our growth and for our benefit. James 4, 13 through 17. Before I read this text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help and his blessing. Gracious God, you have told us that your word is living and active, Lord, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of joint and marrow of soul and spirit, and discerning the intentions of the heart. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, and ears to hear, and hearts to believe the truths of your word and the good news of the gospel. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Here now, the reading of God's Word, James 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. The story is told of a pastor who had lunch with another pastor, and I promise it's not me, it's not Barry, it's no one that you know, it's just one of those stories that we pastors like to tell. So two pastors are having lunch, and the one pastor tells the other one, man, you're not going to believe what happened a couple weeks ago. I preached this incredible sermon, uh, and it was really, really good, and when people were coming through the line greeting me, the comments were just exceptional. That one person after another kept telling, what a good sermon. And I have to tell you, it was so encouraging that people realized what a good sermon it was. Well, then I went home, and my wife was busy trying to get lunch on the table, and the kids seemed to be everywhere at once. And rather than welcome home, oh great orator, or whatever nice compliment she had for me, I was greeted with, hey, honey, uh, the baby's diaper's dirty, can you change it? That's not what I should receive when I get home. I thought so. Change the diaper. The man continues and he says, then the next thing, my wife says, well, the garbage needs to be taken out too. It's been here for a couple days. I thought, this is terrible. But I did it. Finally, lunch was ready and we came to the table and I said, well, what did you think of the sermon? I was all ready for her just to go wild. The man said, But she said, honey, I heard them at the door, and they said enough to last for two weeks. So many compliments. You don't need what I have to say. You know, all of us, including pastors, can struggle with pride. And pride takes many different forms. 
It can be to the ridiculous football celebration in the end zone after a touchdown. It can be that outlandish story that just makes us look like the hero. It can be the perfect post of your family on social media looking all perfect when in reality that was two seconds of perfection. And oftentimes I think pride is much more subtle. And that's what James is teaching us here at the end of chapter 4. You know, he doesn't even mention the word pride once, but he does talk about boasting. And James' point is that pride can come out when we're thinking about the future, when we're planning for what comes ahead. And this form of pride is sneaky. We can convince ourselves that we are being good planners, but deep down our heart is full of pride and the danger is we might not even realize it. Well, in order to unpack this pride that we find here, I want us to see how James presents three things, the danger, the reality, and the solution. So first, the danger. Look at how he begins in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This introductory phrase, come now, is an invitation to contemplate something, to evaluate how people think or act. In other words, it's examine the worldview, how you think about the world around you and how you live in light of that. And James gives us a glimpse into how some people look at the world, specifically their future. Remember, this is a letter written to believers, or at least to people who profess faith in Christ. This is not written to non-believing outsiders out there in the world. No, this is written to people like you and like me. At first glance, the future plans found there in verse 13 don't seem like that big of a deal. In fact, we might say, wow, this person has vision. They have a plan. They have confidence that right there is an entrepreneur. This seems like the type of person you'd want to hire to expand your business, right? So what's the problem? What's the danger? Why is James correcting this kind of approach? The problem here is not the work. Some have taken this as a condemnation of capitalism. That's the farthest thing from what James has in mind here. The problem is not making a profit or any particular business model per se, Now, the danger is not really in what is said, but rather in what is left unsaid. When we read between the lines there in verse 13, we realize that what is missing is God. This planning for the future leaves out the most important part, the most important character, the Lord God himself. In other words, the danger is thinking about the future, planning for what we want to do, without taking God's desires, God's will, into consideration at all. In verse 16, James says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Well, looking back at verse 13, it doesn't seem like there's too much boasting there. However, autonomous planning, without considering what God has to say or his approach, really is a form of boasting. It's elevating ourselves. We think we know best for our future or for the future of our kids. 
These people are planning their future without considering the Lord and they're boasting about it. And friends, we do the same thing. What, us? No, we would never do that, right? Well, picture a junior in high school. She's smart, pretty, athletic, and has her whole life ahead of her. What are your plans for the future, someone asks her. Well, I'm going to go to the University of South Carolina on a soccer scholarship. I'm going to study business and get a minor in Spanish. Then I'm going to get an internship between the summer between my junior and senior year of college. After graduation, I'm going to work for my dad's company for probably three to five years, get some experience, get my foot in the door. And then I'm going to start my own company, and I really hope to be a millionaire prior to age 30. At that point, I'll get married, and after a couple years, we'll have two children, a boy and a girl, and then we'll buy a house at the lake, and I'll live the life that I've always dreamed. Sounds like this high school student has her head on her shoulders, right? Except there's the problem. Nowhere in her plans is the mention of God or the fact that God might move her course this way or that way. Definitive in the statements. This is the very thing that James condemns. Or picture a husband and wife sitting on the couch talking after the kids have gone to bed. Their kids are young, you know, four years old, two years old, something like that, and they start thinking about the future for their children. What do we want for our kids? Well, they're going to go to this particular preschool, which will give them a leg up for acceptance into this private school. When they're in school, they'll play two sports. They'll each have play an instrument. They'll be in several clubs. They'll take all the AP classes so they can have that better resume than all the other kids. They'll get into our alma mater or maybe even a better school, maybe an Ivy League school. They're going to both graduate summa cum laude, and they'll get into grad school, no problem. They'll get really good jobs. They'll get married. Everything's going to be great. Sounds like good parenting, right? Giving your kids the opportunities that you never had. What's the problem? Again, no mention of God, no consideration. What might the Lord have for the future for your children? I think of a 63-year-old man. He's two years away from retirement, his financial advisor says. As long as the stock market doesn't collapse, he starts thinking of retirement. Once I retire, I'll stay on my company for a few years, maybe do some consulting. This will pad my accounts until I can start drawing Social Security. And then once I fully retire, then life is going to get good. I get to play golf maybe three times a week. I'll take my family to the beach each year. My friends and I will hang out whenever I want. My wife and I will take the trips that we've always wanted but never been able to. And then after I've done all that I want, seen all that I want to, I'm going to die in my sleep peacefully before I'm too old to be a bother to my children. Sounds great, right? Except what's the problem again? It's no consideration of the Lord. And these are hypothetical examples, they're just silly illustrations, but yet they get to the heart of the matter, and that we all at times think about the future, we kind of put God on the back burner. We can convince ourselves that we're being really good stewards, when in reality, we're being prideful and autonomous makers of our own destiny, except it doesn't work. We can try all we want to, but it doesn't happen. A closer look at the text here before us shows that James is connecting pride with wealth. Now, these people that he mentions aren't incredibly wealthy, but they're wealthy enough to to travel, to have business endeavors in another town. Uh, They're probably the, the middle class or upper middle class. 
James is saying, wealth is not the problem, but it can make you susceptible to this form of pride. Writer Arthur Simon puts it this way, an affluent culture turns our hearts towards fleeting satisfactions and away from God, while unprecedented prosperity has left our lives full, but not necessarily fulfilled. The problem is not that we've tried faith and found it wanting, but that we've tried mammon and found it addictive. And as a result, we find following Christ inconvenient. Mammon, there's a reference to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says you can't serve both God and mammon, God and money, God and the things of this world. Where are you guilty of planning for the future without taking God into consideration? It's just subtle, it's sneaky, but it's a form of pride that we all need to wrestle with and see where it might be in our hearts. Well, this is the danger, but thankfully James doesn't just stop with that. He doesn't just identify the problem, he offers a reality and then a solution. And we find the reality in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In this verse, we find two realities. One that is behind the scenes and one that is at the forefront. Behind the scenes is the reality that God is the sovereign ruler of the world. He is the one seated on the throne, ruling and reigning. His providence is over all. Nothing happens outside of his will and plan. He knows all sees all, ordains all, and rules over all. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Similarly, Psalm 115, 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about God's providence and says that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Well, what does this have to do with future planning? How does this connect with James 4? Well, Proverbs 19, 21 sheds some light on it. It says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In other words, our plans might be this, but God's purposes are that. And God says, my plans will stand, yours will not. Sure, we can have our plans, but the Lord and his sovereignty will bring about what he has planned to come to be. God's will will come to pass no matter what. And you can get mad at this. You can throw your hands up in the air and cry out in frustration. Well, what's the point? Or you can find this to be incredibly comforting and liberating. God's sovereignty is not meant to make us angry. It's meant to bring us hope and relief. It means that you're not God, and it relieves you of the duties of trying to be God. The second reality we see in this verse is much clearer. Our life is a vapor, and we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Think about it. What's going to happen tomorrow? You don't know. I don't know. Even the weatherman only has a certain level of confidence in his prediction about the weather for tomorrow. You might get a call tomorrow when a relative has passed away, and you inherit a million dollars. 
We might find out that you have terminal cancer. You and I aren't promised tomorrow. Today could be our last day on earth. Teenagers, most people will tell you that you have your whole life ahead of you. And that's true to a certain degree. But how long is your whole life? It could be a day, it could be a week, it could be a month, it could be 80 or 90 more years. And most young people say things or think things like, well, I'm going to have my fun now, but later when I'm older, then I'll take my relationship with God more seriously. The problem with that is you're not promised that future hypothetical date in your mind. That can be true for all of us. We can think, oh, I'll take that seriously later. On top of that, James tells us that our life is but a vapor. In the grand scheme of eternity, your life is but a blip on the screen. When James uses the term vapor or mist, he probably has in mind the ocean, and his audience would come to mind, they would think about Early in the morning on the sea, there's that nice mist. But in the hot, dry climate there in the Middle East, what happens early or mid-morning, that mist is gone. If you live out on the lake or spend any time on the lake, you know exactly what I'm talking to, talking about. Or think about it like this. Brought with me a spray bottle that our boys love to play with. But you spray it, there's a mist. How long does it last? It's just a second, right? That's the point James is making. Your life is so short. We'll not live on this life forever. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. So why are we so dogmatic about planning our future? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. My kids will do this. My grandkids will do that. We don't know. But John, this is so morbid, I came here to be encouraged, not depressed, you might think. Friends, the Bible is clear. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. While this life is short, it's also not all there is. One day we will all stand before a holy God. We'll give an account for how we lived our life. Will you have lived your life? Living for yourself and planning your future as if God doesn't exist? Or will you plead the perfect record of Christ, humbly depending on Him? This leads us to our final point, the solution. When we realize the reality of God's sovereignty and our frailty, we're enabled to live as God desires. Look at verse 15. James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Do you see the difference between this verse and verse 13? It's subtle, but the simple addition of if the Lord wills makes all the difference. Perhaps you've heard people say, or maybe you yourself say, you know, I'll see you Sunday, Lord willing. Or you might see the Latin phrase, Deo valente, or shortened DV, the Lord wills, or Lord willing. You know, there's a danger that this could become something that we just kind of say flippantly or tritely over and over again. That's not what James has in mind. He's saying this is how we are to think and to live. In fact, we don't even have to say, Lord willing. We can. There's nothing wrong with saying, see you to such and such, Lord willing. 
But it's the heart attitude behind it that really is what matters. It's planning while knowing that God has his plans which are far better than ours. It's working on the future while holding everything with open palms rather than clenched fists. You know, this is hard. It's super hard, especially when it comes to planning for college or planning for your children or planning for marriage or planning for retirement. It requires an incredible amount of trust in the Lord. And this trust is a gift from God. You can't just try harder to depend on him more. No, you need to pray, Lord, help me to trust you more. When it comes to my future, help me trust you. When it comes to the future of my children, help me trust you because I want to take matters into my own hands. Yes, be proactive and plan, but I trust the Lord with it all. How can you grow in acknowledging God in your future planning? How might your prayers look different? How might your goals shift? How might your dreams be altered? James provides us one more solution to the danger of planning without God. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This kind of seems a little out of place. This is like kind of tacked on to the end. But it's actually a really fitting way to end a section on, on future planning. Once we know what is right, if we don't do it, then it is sin. Now we need to be careful. This doesn't mean that the quote, innocent person in another country who's never heard about God, never read the Bible, whatever they do is not sin because they don't know it. No, Romans 1 makes it clear that we all have a knowledge of sin through our conscience enough to condemn us before God. No, rather what James is, is saying is that when we know what we should do, we know what is right, and we fail to do it, it's, it's worse for us. Some sins are worse than others, and if we know what we're to do and we don't do it, then it's worse. God holds us more accountable in one sense. And so this means now that we know that we're to acknowledge God in the future, it's sin if we fail to do so. And I think James is going even deeper. He's kind of summarizing what he's been saying all in chapter 3 and 4. He's really calling us to follow the will of God, to be people who care for others, to love others. What is God's will? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So often we want to know what God's will is for our life. What is God's plan? Let me let you in on an insight. It's not some secret that you have to figure out before it happens. No, God's will is right here. It's your sanctification, that you'd be more like Christ, that you would love him and that you would serve him. That's what God desires for your life and for mine. When we acknowledge God in our future planning, we submit to his sovereignty and find strength to live Christ-like lives. I want to close with a story that illustrates this whole idea of what James is talking about. There's a minister by the name of Thomas Koch who left his ministry in the Anglican Church back in 1777 to become John Wesley's chief assistant in the new, quickly growing Wesleyan movement. On September 24th, 1785, he packed his books and his bags and he set sail down the English Channel and into the Atlantic Ocean, sailing for Nova Scotia. 
He had three missionaries accompanying him, seeking to set up a a missionary outpost there in Nova Scotia. But the voyage was ill-fated and grew more perilous by the day. The ship was caught in massive waves and terrible winds. The ship's captain determined Coke and his missionaries, kind of like the biblical Jonah, were bringing problems upon the ship and even considered throwing the missionary overboard. In fact, he gathered up some of his papers and threw them into the ocean. The voyage took three months instead of the planned one. And instead of landing in Nova Scotia, the damaged ship ended up in the Caribbean, limping into St. John's Harbor on the island of Antigua on Christmas Day. Coke knew that at least one Methodist lived somewhere on Antigua, a missionary named John Baxter. And hoping to find him, Coke and the three missionaries asked to be rowed ashore. Once on shore, they walked down the street looking for the first person they would find to ask about Baxter. They found a man swinging a lantern in his hand, and they asked about Baxter. And to their surprise, it was Baxter himself. He was on his way to special Christmas morning services that he had planned for the island. The sudden appearance of Coke and his missionaries out of the darkness, out of nowhere, seemed too good to be true. It took three services that day to accommodate all the folks that showed up to worship the Lord. And after it was over, Coke and his associates abandoned any idea of going to Nova Scotia. They planted the missionary team on Antigua and other islands nearby. And by the time of Coke's death in 1814, there were over 17,000 believers in the Methodist churches there. Friends, when we make our plans but acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty, we never know where we will end up. But it will be exactly where the Lord wants us. And we wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So trust God. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Believe the gospel and enjoy the adventure that life brings as God directs our paths. Let us pray.